0: Welcome back, everyone, to Mike on Money. My name is Michael LeBlanc, Director and Senior Portfolio Manager, and thanks for joining us here every week uh, where we do a live update of uh, what we saw last week in the markets and what we see coming up. And uh, we take a look at uh, different financial topics. Today, we're gonna to be covering off ETFs, uh, what they are and uh, when you should use them. Um, they're very powerful tools and there's something that we can uh, leverage in a portfolio, but uh, should really understand some basics on it. So uh, we're gonna take it from the beginning and, and uh, you know, kind of explain where and how to use the different types in, uh, in investing and in your portfolios. With that, I'm also going to mention last week, of course, we talked about cryptocurrencies <clears throat> and Bitcoin and Ethereum. Uh, and as I mentioned, we did do a four-part series uh, on that. So if you want to uh, have the links to those that, uh, that we're rolling out, uh, just go to mikeonmoney.com, send us a message or email us, uh, give us a call, uh, or you can find those on our YouTube channel as well. So those will be coming out. The first one's already out. and uh, the next three will be out very shortly. So with that, as always, everything in these videos are for educational purposes only. Always do your own due diligence or speak to a professional advisor before applying anything to, uh, to your portfolios, or to your two strategies uh, to ensure that they're right for you and they fall within your risk tolerances. So uh, so if you have any questions on that or if you wanna look at any anything in a portfolio in particular, uh, reach out to us again, just go to myconmoney.com. So with that, let's jump into things, uh, what we see in the economy. We are looking for the manufacturing report, uh, the PMI for uh, for May coming up. Uh, should be pretty good, actually. I mean, obviously, you know, the big backlog in manif- manufacturing these days is uh, just, um, not being able to keep up uh, with the surge in demand as things reopen, um, kind of that pent-up demand being uh, swiping out inventory, so the numbers should be fairly strong. Canada's GDP for March, uh, actually we've seen that number out uh, just to, uh, today, uh, 5.4%, uh, big jump up, uh, one of the, I think, the highest growth we've seen uh in several years uh, at one time, which, you know, continues on that inflationary story. Uh, And we're also looking for the Fed Reserve uh, Board of Governors uh, who are gonna get together and update on their outlook. Uh, Stocks ticked future, or stocks futures, sorry, ticked higher on Tuesday. Um, You know, we did have a couple of weeks of slower markets. Things seem to be picking back up absorbing uh, a lot of that uh, inflation data, uh, but having a, a good feeling and growth uh, uh, or optimi- optimistic view on the growth of the uh, fundamental economy, uh, which is good. <clears throat> and uh, we've seen that pretty much apro- across the markets. And of course, uh, the US markets were closed yesterday for Memorial Day, uh, Canadian all, Canadian markets were weak, which is normal with the lack of volumes and things picking up today. Uh, just what's going on out there? Um, just a story, you know, eight kids and none who have doomed the coal's future. Uh, this is just following up uh, we talked a couple of weeks ago on one of the states taking um, you know some of the uh, fossil fuel companies to to court uh, around damage to the environment, global damage to the environment and and that uh, that rule in the court. Uh, ruled in favor of the companies the fossil fuel companies uh, here we have royal Dutch Shell um, you know facing the same type of cases out in Australia and there's a, a small school run by a nun with uh, eight kids who have put in for their class action uh, it hasn't been approved uh, but it wasn't denied so it wasn't a victory for the for for the uh, plaintiffs um, but it wasn't an outright um shutdown for Royal Dutch either. So this is kind of the beginning, um, probably of a trend that we're going to see around, especially coal, but uh, I would say any uh, fossil fuel company would be um, protected from. the. Uh, we saw the same idea happen to the tobacco companies years ago uh, for, from, uh, from the stance of Uh, going after them for healthcare costs or countries and states uh, going after them for healthcare costs. Uh, And and we're probably seeing this ramp up for the fossil fuels. So I would expect in the next year or two years, we're going to see more and more of these cases, bigger and bigger headlines and bigger and bigger, uh, or more and more significant rulings uh, being put into place around that. And then on the Canadian front, the, the telecoms, the, regulars, uh, the regulators sorry, had a rule in last week that they call it a dark period for smaller operators. So this goes back now to uh, 2016 and 2019 when um, CRTC in Canada uh, put, changed uh, pricing rule in 2019 kind of forcing the big operators who control the telecom waves. Uh, or your cellular waves out there uh, to put in wholesale prices so smaller operators could afford to buy at wholesale prices and then offer you know, a competitive package and be able to still price to retail. Uh, so there was a rule in, in 2019 that overruled a uh, previous rule of, or a pricing rule in, in 2016 uh, that put, made it really tough on smaller uh, competitors. That 2019 was just appealed, and uh, it got repealed back to the 2016 pricing. So the smaller operators are basically saying we can't operate uh, at, at that level, and they're they're asking the Canadian government to step in and overrule the CRTC on this uh, and give them an opportunity to compete in that space. Uh, I, I do think this is probably going to get a fairly good hearing, just simply because we saw the recent Shaw Rogers um, merger you know, taken out uh, one of the big players, maybe not on the telecom side uh, where Shaw wasn't, uh, uh, was a newcomer to the mobile market. Uh, But certainly uh, that would, the Shaw's growth in the market would have created more competition. And and of course, now that's all rolled up into Shaw and, uh, or sorry, to Rogers and of course, Roger, you know, so there's less and less uh, competition out there. So it'll be interesting to see where that leads. We'll keep a close eye on and what that might mean for uh, telecom businesses in Canada. Um, what's, what else is going on in the news out there? Uh, pent-up demand uh, shortages of fuel uh, is, is causing that inflation number just to, to, to creep up. Uh, as we saw last week or the week before, uh, Canada saw a uh, 3.4% inflation number for the month of April. And now we're seeing the US, the U.S. go through their 2% number, their 2% target, which is the largest gain since 1992 for the U.S. Uh, not overly concerned, as we mentioned. We were expected the pent up demand as the reopening started to happen to drive things up initially. And then hopefully an ease off, easing off inflation a little bit for the balance of the year, but then trending back up again. So this is just that initial spike. We were fully expecting that, and it looks like the the market is is absorbing it uh, as as we were hoping it would. Um, Morgan Stanley is uh, is looking to add or or buy out, uh, almost so far, uh, a full ownership in their China venture, uh, where they had a partner over there, and as the partner is putting their shares up for sale, uh, Morgan Stanley is, is buying up the securities for about $150 million, so just increasing their footprint in China. Uh, more mergers and acquisitions. Italy's uh, Alley Group uh, has a $3 billion build, bid out to buy up uh, their US rival well-built. Um, this is the uh, food service equipment manufacturer. So, uh, you know, again, as we've seen, obviously with restaurants and everything being closed for the last year, uh, or over a year, um, not a lot of food equipment being sold for new, uh, new restaurants opening up or people doing upgrades. Uh, so just that, you know, bids out there to amalgamate, uh, amalgamate companies and, uh, and the merger and acquisition volume that we've seen in the markets has been moving from sector to sector as each one's been hit and has suffered through the closures. And this is just another example of that. Uh, BlackRock is going up against uh, BP, uh, BP's board on the climate change uh, resolution vote. So uh, this is just kind of a follow-through. Uh, we talked about it last week with Exxon. Uh, so they had a bit of a proxy battle uh, around their board about focusing the company's direction more towards uh, greener technology or diversifying the company's uh, focus uh, so BP, BlackRock being a big shareholder, BP or BlackRock being a institutional uh, investor, uh, being a big shareholder in BP, uh, is is going to the board to uh, have them, you know, put have their say around what the board's uh, policy is going to be about the direction of the company when it comes to climate change and climate resolution going forward. And this law, you know, all leads into those lawsuits. Of course, these companies are looking. At the future and what that means and, and what they have to change uh, going forward to be not only competitive but to diversify their business as things shift in the underlying economies. On the COVID front, uh, things going well. Uh, obviously last week when we spoke was the you know 10 minutes before BC put out their rollout, uh, the rollout numbers or dates uh, so, uh, reopening dates, I should say, so we did, we do have this slow rollout uh, and reopening, uh, here in BC. um, already, of course, our, uh, in-person dining in and the restaurants have reopened pretty much right after the long weekend, uh, for most places, uh, you know, a little more lax about having a couple friends over with, uh, distancing, uh, and larger groups, uh, outside using, following protocols, uh, and then June fifteenth, lifting the travel ban—or uh, sorry, planned lift of the travel ban. Uh, of course, because uh, this is all going to be based on whether we hit certain targets and trends in the numbers. And then um, September first, of course, talking about a full lift. So uh, B- thats BC. Ontario is doing uh, some slowly, a little bit slower than than uh, BC as far as their reopening goes. Quebec started some of their reopening. Uh, all going well. I think I heard the number yesterday in BC. As far as 18 plus adults, we are at 69.4% with the first vaccine. The second vaccine is well into the uh, the rollout here in BC and they've shortened the, the time period between the two uh, down to two months, even shorter in some cases. And of course, uh, Canada just came out this morning saying you don't have to get the same second shot. So I think what I read, and it was preliminary news. I, I read out this morning that if you had Pfizer, you'd have Pfizer. If you had Moderna, you could have Pfizer or Moderna. And if you had Astrazeneca, you could have Pfizer. Um, so, um, and another big shipment. I think of Pfizer came in yesterday for for Canada, which was uh, which is good news. So um, that looks like the rollout of the second shots are going to be uh, going to be accelerated. Uh, and, and hoping that BC, I think now they're estimating second shots by July at some point uh, for most people. So, so things going well here, and of course uh, around the world, uh, things improving in the U.S. Of course, the reopenings happening there. UK, uh, still uh, still some challenges in a lot of countries. And as I've always said throughout all this, this is great for us. This is great, um, you know, for businesses in Canada business in the U.S., business, businesses in those developed countries. But now the focus has to turn to the rest of the world because there's a lot of countries that haven't had the, the, the financial means or, or access to the vaccine to, to be as successful with the, the rollout or as quick with the rollouts. And until we really get uh, the, the entire world vaccinated, uh, we're still at risk of these, these variants. And, and in fact, uh, uh, I think the WHO mentioned uh, that they've named now two of the very extreme variants with a new name because they've, they've, they've changed so much. Uh, and then the risk is eventually that they, they become uh, resistant to the, to the vaccines. Um, that, that's a stage we don't want to get to. So until we really want the world to open up and until we really want uh, travel and, and, and things to really open on a global basis, uh, we have to start turning our, our sights now onto, those, those global numbers. And the EU uh, even came up yesterday saying, uh, you know, they're recommending all countries now uh, maybe not focus so much on the 18, you know, teenagers uh, vaccine, but really focus on the rest of the world at risk. Uh, because until we get the variants under control, uh, we won't see that full global reopening uh, happening, at least not, you know, in a manner that we really want to see. So uh, just keep that in mind with the the COVID things going great here. Let's enjoy that, um, and we'll keep an eye on uh, as the rest of the world addresses their their um, their policies and programs as well. In the U.S., uh, the U.S. economic calendar. Uh, what we see coming up is we're looking for payroll numbers. Uh, we yeah. saw some uh, go the private payroll numbers go up in May after surging in April as well. We see that teeter in numbers. I mentioned uh, last time when we looked at April numbers, they had spiked quite a bit. Uh, As I mentioned, not to be a concern, we are expecting a bit of uh, highs and lows on a month to month. We're just looking at that trend to continue to grow. So seeing a drop, uh, seeing that drop from uh, April to May is not concerning. Um, There was just April was when the US really first started the reopening. So there was that initial spike. Uh, but it continues to be strong numbers as we go through. Uh, And we are looking for that stabilization. Where is it going to stabilize? What are all the numbers? Whether it's a manufacturing number, whether it's job creation, job losses, we're just looking for a stable growth line, uh, not necessarily looking to set new records every single month um, as uh, as we get back to normal here, as we reopen the economy uh, fully. We are expected to see some updated numbers on Thursday on the, Uh, jobless, uh, sorry, the jobless claims data. So uh, how many are not getting back to work? So really trying to uh, find where in the economy we've lost jobs, right? Which jobs are not going to come back, right? Or which jobs have we lost from full-time to part-time? Because that's going to to be a a big effect of this reopening is, yes, we're going to have new jobs uh, coming back. But uh, some areas, where we may never see the job numbers get back to where they were. We might have permanently lost in certain sectors uh, a certain number of jobs as things, uh, companies closed, shuttered completely, uh, or people downsized or or became more efficient uh, with technology upgrades through all this. That's the numbers that we're going to be looking for as we see these things reopen. Uh, And so we're looking for those non-farm payroll increases and uh, and, and the job loss rates for those months. Of course, uh, the Fed Reserve is putting out their beige book, So that's, we're just gonna get an update from the Fed Reserve on their outlook on the, uh, that, that economic recovery, how it's going and uh, what they see coming up for this year. So keep an eye on those, uh, their, their comments and how they, they word their language there. Uh, again, in the US, um, money is cheap out there. We've talked about it as long as interest rates stay low. Uh, we'll see companies invest in growth, and that's the same for the government. The White House is looking at a six trillion dollar budget, uh, and this is you know a lot of the things they've already talked about. So, the infrastructure deal they talked about, the, the educational deal they talked about, the, the money they want to put in climate change and green technology uh, all these things in themselves look good. Of course, they're borrowing very cheaply right now, so they can borrow more. Uh, and if they can get the economy up and running uh, and, and uh, bring back a lot of new jobs, grow new industries, uh, hopefully they can get some of those debt paid back or the deficit paid back or, or reduced rather by the time it costs them more to uh, borrow money on the um, on their debt side of things. Uh, Britain approved the J&J vaccine, uh, although they also cut orders uh, at the same time. Uh, as Britain is pretty far ahead on their their rollout of the vaccine, uh, they didn't need as much as they they ordered, and and it, and it took them longer to uh, to get it approved. So, just as the approval comes through, they cut the they cut their order by ten million doses. Uh, in the U.S., Bowen can't get out of the uh, the challenges with FAA after, of course, their their max eight uh, debacle uh, of a couple of years ago. Um, the Dreamliner deliveries have now been stalled uh, just around uh, confirming data and their their, their inspection method, methods uh, to meet federal requirements to make sure that the new planes coming off the assembly lines meet all the requirements for the FAA. Uh, obviously the FAA is gonna be very uh, very tight on their rulings these days. After the the Max Eight, uh, you know, two significant tragic crashes there, uh, and massive loss loss of life, uh, they want to make sure uh, everything's uh, correct with any new planes coming off the uh, the assembly lines these days. CRV uh, Energy exploring producing a sustainable aviation fuel. So, uh, if you're not aware. You know, one of the biggest contributors to greenhouse gases when it comes to burning fossil fuel these days is air travel uh, and, and planes. So, uh, te- any technology to for planes to become either more fuel efficient, burn or burn cleaner, uh, or using some sort of clean technology, uh, there's going to be a lot of investment and interest around. And uh, CRV Energy out there is exploring whether they can create a sustainable aviation fuel, fuel rather. Uh, for airplanes, uh, and so you know, it's definitely a new technology to take a look, keep an eye on and take a look at it. Of course, uh, we've already got uh, uh, electric vehicles, or sorry, electric planes being tested out there in smaller aircraft. You know, but that may lead to larger eventually. Um, but anything around air travel that we can uh, fly cleaner is a technology we'll uh, we'll keep a close eye on. Wayho. Uh, is to go public, uh, taking their deal at auto, uh, auto data Startup. They want to go public with uh, raising about $800 million um, on a blank check deal. So this is kind of one of, we talked about, IPOs and SPACs a couple of weeks ago. Uh, so this is a very similar deal. So it's a reverse takeover uh, where they'll uh, reverse merger onto the market and blank check just means that they're going to raise as much money as they can and they're expecting to get over $800 million, including debt valuation for the firm So uh, another IPO is a little bit slower, as I mentioned, they're losing a little bit of steam. In fact, the SPAC market um, and IPO market, while it had a massive start to 2021 uh, has, has, has now uh, not record lows, but you know slowed dramatically uh, compared to numbers over the last couple of years. Coming up in Canada, Stats Canada is looking to show the country's economic growth numbers. Uh, they're looking for a rate of 6.7, actually came in at 6.4. Um, so, uh, you know, well above expected uh, uh, or, or average growth for Canada. Uh, and then fourth quarter last year, they saw 9.6, which was, of course, that was from the lows of the pandemic closures. Uh, so all good news. Uh, we are seeing a strong economic growth in Canada as we start to reopen things. Um, we're looking again at the PMI numbers for May to be rele- released coming up here um, just to see how that sector is doing. Uh, Canada's current account though did swing to a surplus for Q1, uh, the first time since 08. Uh, so that's mainly boosted by, uh, our exports in oil and lumber. Um, but just showing that Canada's exporting a, a lot more, uh, and doing well as the economy's, uh, being sustained maybe by a couple of sectors, but as things reopen a lot more, hopefully by a more broad base of sectors. Uh, the G7 is definitely looking at that minimum global tax. Uh, and there's a lot of support out there from it, even from the United States. Uh, and this goes to the Biden's government kind of uh, started proposing this. Uh, and this is just to close that tax loop where countries, or sorry, companies can move uh, corp- you know, corporate entities around the world and cash around the world in order to shelter and, and, you know, US companies are famous for this, for having, you know, Apple, for example, certainly not the worst or the only, I'm not picking on them, not the only ones to do this, setting up companies in uh, in Ireland uh, and other um, tax favorable uh, jurisdictions and uh, moving profits from, uh, Apple US into uh, those companies and then not paying tax on that income. Um, very common strategy with very, low, especially international corporations. Uh, so, so the global G7 are looking to put it into a global tax, meaning you would be taxed a minimum rate, uh, maybe lower than your home country, but a minimum rate for global income. So uh, you, you would not be able to shelter completely in a, a really low uh, tax jurisdiction, uh, but you still might be able to reduce your home country's taxation by putting some outside of uh, where your home, uh, your home base is. Uh, Diane Durham, a um, story I haven't talked about since early, early last year, or tw- yeah, early, early 2020. Uh, so Diane Durham, a uh, Canadian-based company, uh, cloud software-based company, uh, went public last year on a really successful IPO. Um, you know, coming out, I think they were initially going to come out in the mid-teens in price. Uh, I think they, when they launched was about twenty-five dollars. Went up to about forty some odd dollars. Uh, pulled back a bit in the markets, uh, and now they're uh, they're they've just received a buyout from management led and a shareholder group to take it private again. Uh, so, uh, so they're looking at going back private, uh, off the exchange again, uh, which is a big win for, for shareholders as it jumped back up over the, uh, I think it was trading about $45 last I heard, anyway, round the, round the buyout bid price. And, uh, so, uh, so going back private again, I guess they didn't like the, uh, the public life on the dollar front, uh, you know, pretty much the same, it remains weak. U S dollars remain weak. We don't see much change in on the dollars, we, as, we, as we've mentioned over the last many, many months. Pretty much a slow downward trend uh, until the US starts to tighten their, their monetary policy, uh, just because of the amount of uh, stimulus they're putting into, the, uh, into their markets. Uh, we don't see the US dollar rising dramatically or the, or the trend, the weak trend to turn around. Uh, we did see the, the, the global basket uh, index Uh, fall slightly. Uh, Euro and sterling, both rising against the US dollar and the Canadian dollar holding just shy of uh, 83 cents. So that's where we're seeing that. Uh, We did see the yields in the 10 years uh, go up slightly um, just on those inflationary numbers, but still within the range that we talked about where we're looking for it to break through about the 1.84, 1.85 and and heading up uh, when we really get concerned around the the inflation number for the short term. Long term, we know it's going there, but short term, that's what we're watching for. Uh, On the oil front, we did see it spike back uh, above uh, $70 a barrel. As I mentioned, there was some selling off uh, where it fell down, uh, fell below the $70 uh, a barrel, uh, but it went up a little bit, 1.5%, you know, to break through the 70 again, which is is good. Um, And uh, it's uh, pretty much driven by the expectation of, research in use in the summer, in the summer months. Uh, Gold rose again, uh, just on those inflationary numbers, just a little bit, you know, to a five month high. So that's good. So now let's take a look at ETFs. What are they and how should we use them and where should we use them? So let's start with the basics here, just so that everyone's on the same page. Uh, ETFs and exchange traded funds you know, have been around for decades. They became much, much more popular over the last decade, uh, growing uh, massively, uh, especially in the last five or six years. And uh, many, many people are, are obviously very familiar with mutual funds. And ETFs is a slightly different animal. Uh, and, and the basic difference between the two is a mutual fund is what we call an uh, open-ended fund. So it's a pool of money that is invested for a specific objective, maybe it's invested in Canadian equities, maybe it's invested in US, maybe it's invested in bonds, Um, but a mutual fund is open-ended, meaning people deposit money into it every single day, and people withdraw money from it every single day, Uh, for most funds, not everyone's, not every one of them are daily liquidity, but you get the idea, and basically, Uh, keeping track of that in and out cash flow and the manager having to actively manage uh, that in and out cash flow. So whether they have to sell stuff to have cash or whether they have to take cash coming in and buy stuff uh, costs money. So the fees are higher. So as ETFs started to become more popular, people started to trend towards ETFs. And and certainly um, advisors trended more towards ETFs as a more favored solution because ETFs are closed-end funds. So no money's flowing in and out on a daily basis. Essentially, when they're set up, there's X amount of money in it, the portfolio gets invested, uh, and then people then trade shares between each other on the exchange. Uh, The ETF manager, so the company that's sponsoring the ETF, can create more units and sell them on the open market, Uh, And they can dissolve units and and they make them go away. But that's not as labor intensive because you're not dealing with individuals, you're dealing with units and it's an institutional big bulk move all at once. So much, 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 much lower fees. So, uh, you know, funds in Canada all in might average around 2% annual all-in fees plus any transaction costs you want to do. Uh, Whereas ETFs, Uh, are well below a half a percent, and in fact, we'll talk about the differences, uh, many of them down at 0.05% these days uh, to to run, and then it's just your transaction or buying and selling costs or or management costs if someone's managing them for you. So much, much lower, which, you know, right away, ETFs start to look better uh, because then that extra return or that lower cost goes right to you. So if you're buying the same animal, one in mutual fund form, one in ETF form, if there's a lower cost to have the ETF, that's more money in your pocket at the end of the day. That's, that's always a good thing. So that's hence the popularity and growth in ETFs. Now, before, I'm not going to talk about mutual funds, but I, uh, and I do not use mutual funds generally in people's portfolios. Uh, because of the highest cost structure. But I will not say they're bad uh, because they're not. And in certain very specific situations, they they 100% make sense. So let's park mutual funds for a moment. Let's talk about ETFs. So ETFs started to become uh, very popular early on, um, basically what we call passive or index ETFs. So these are ETFs that uh, no thought goes into them uh, as far as uh, what's inside them. Uh, they just match an index. So for example, if you wanna buy the TSX 60, uh, which is the top 60 um, companies in Canada by by market cap uh, and our GDP, um, you can, instead of going buying those 60 companies on the market, you can buy one ETF that just owns those top 60 companies. No thought goes into that ETF. No one's out there saying which are the best 40 of the 60. No one's uh, out there saying should be in Canadian stocks or US stocks. Nothing like that. It's just going to own the, those top 60 companies. Now, should a company fall out of that 60 and a new one put in, it will do that transaction. But for the most part, it doesn't do anything. You buy your ETF, it's passive. You have to then decide whether you want that top 60 exposure, or you don't want that top 60 exposure. Uh, So there's a lot of different ones in that passive category. You can buy the S&P 500, same idea, top 500 uh, by uh, GDP weight in in the US. Uh, There's the QQQ, which is the NASDAQ market, which again, just matches the NASDAQ index. So that's been your technology index in the United States. Uh, You can buy... Canadian banking sector, so the top five banks, equal weight. Top five banks in Canada, uh, 20, uh, 20% in each one, right? Equal weight across five. Uh, that It will rebalance it back to that 20% weight in every now and then. Um, depending on which one you buy, they'll tell you whether it's monthly, quarterly, or annually, they do a rebalancing, but it just owns those. So you can be very targeted from a passive uh, nature. Uh, You can buy them for bonds. Same idea. You can buy Canadian uh, broad bond index. You can buy a Canadian short-term bond index. You can buy a U.S. You can buy an international. Uh, You can buy gold. You can buy any market you think of globally. You can buy an ETF on the passive side of things. So on the passive side of things, uh, okay, let's part that for a moment. Let's talk about the active side of things. So now you can also buy ETFs. That actually have thought put into them and there's a few different ways you can have that there's the uh, manager uh, might be putting thought into it so an individual uh, is managing around a specific goal so it might be i want you know canadian stocks that pay you know the best dividends so there might be a manager selecting the stocks that go into that etf That uh, would make up the best dividend paying portfolio uh, using only Canadian stocks. Uh, And again, you can do that globally. Uh, You can have a manager with pretty much, uh, you know, again, there's so many ETFs out there. Uh, You can pretty much have any um, actively managed goal you want. You can can have it, as I say, global companies. Uh, You could have it around growth. You could have it around technology. Uh, pretty much anything. So you can have an active portfolio. Those ones, the management fees are going to be closer to the 0.5 because now there is work being done in there. There's more trades being done. Uh, there's a manager uh, overseeing things. Uh, so those ones are going to be closer to the 0.5. The passive ones are going to be closer to the 0.05. Uh, and then in between those two, you have thematic uh, type of, uh, of uh, managed ETFs. And that means there's more Um, trade-in, it's around a specific goal, uh, but it's automated. So it's not an individual that's making the decisions, it's rules-based. So that means it basically says, here's a calculation to determine what's the best one to be in there, the best ones to be in there. Whichever ones fit that calculation, they go in. If it doesn't fit this calculation, it doesn't go in. And it will change them as they fall in and out of that calculation parameter. So those ones are, are again, in the mid on the pricing because there is, um, there is obviously programmers, there's a bit more trading activity within them and a bit more active within the portfolio. But as far as you're doing, you're just buying the ETF. You don't have to do anything. You selected it because you want that. So where should you use these and how should you use these? So I'm going to kind of give you the uh, the broad scope of this um, and, you know, how you can build a couple different portfolios, and then I'll give you my, my opinion, and I'd love to hear your opinions if you, if you have different opinions or you uh, use different opinions on this. But um, there's kind of two different schools of thoughts out there. Um, active versus passive. So passive would be you would go by... Um, you know, say that the, the TSX-60, the S&P 500, the QQQ, a couple of bond ones, and maybe a global exposure uh, based on a, an asset allocation of your risk, right? So if you're, you've determined your risk is, um, you know, 50-50 equities, uh, 50% income, you would buy 50% of that in, in, a, in a range, you know, maybe a short-term fixed income, a mid-term fixed income, and a long-term fixed income. And then your 50% equity, you might go by Canadian, a broad Canadian uh, passive, a broad US passive, and a broad global passive, right? And then there's your passive portfolio. Maybe once a year you look at that and you bring it back to that 50-50 percentages again, and that's a passive approach. So that's one way of looking at uh, owning ETFs. Be very low cost to have one of those portfolios, um, whether you will get the volatility of each of those underlying markets dependent on what's going on out there the active um the active philosophy can take one of two uh, approaches the one approach uh if you want to be as hands off as possible is to go buy some active etfs so you know buy some broad active etfs but allow the managers so they're broad enough that the managers that are looking after those etfs can make the decision as to should they be short-term bonds, should they be long-term bonds, should they be mixed? You know, what that, that mix should be. Um, on the equity side, should they be in Canadian large cap dividends uh, uh, or small cap growth? Uh, should they be more, more US, more Canadian? Uh, you know, what should they be doing on the global front? Uh, which sectors to be in, uh, et cetera. So you can, you can buy those ETFs and still be passive on your side, maybe rebalance them uh, again once a year but give the power to the managers within the ETFs to make those, those shifts around for you. Or there's one, and here's where my opinion falls in, is you, uh, if you're working with an advisor particularly, um, is to use passive to be very targeted. So now you and your your, your advisor uh, are making decisions as to where to move around those markets by using very targeted passive ones. So. If you want over, if you want to have extra exposure to the Canadian banks, you would buy that very specific one, as opposed to buying the TS660, which would be very broad. Uh, If you want overexposure, you know, I've talked about, you know, cybersecurity uh, or the electrical car market or gold or, 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 right. You can be very, very targeted. Um, And then, you know, of course, the responsibility is now between either yourself or your advisor to decide when to you know, move out of oil and into banks or out of banks and into technology and and, and, and be active that way, but using the lowest cost access to get active uh, management with your ETFs. So that's kind of how to, how to use them. Um, they're very transparent. They can, be, they can be very diversified, very liquid. Uh, if you're trading them to yourselves, do watch liquidity because um, most ETFs don't have price and spread. And when we say price and spread, so when you're trading on the market, there's always what we call a bid and an ask, right? So someone's offering for sale and someone's trying to buy. Um, and you can have a price difference. Someone might offer, you know, at $10 and someone uh, might, you know, only uh, put out $9. So, you know, is a spread and who's going to move and pay extra or get, um, get less? Uh, most ETFs have a very tight spread, meaning pennies. So you're not really worried about that spread. You would just go buy it at whatever, you know, it's offered up at and uh, you're not going to, or you'd sell it at what, you know, someone's buying it for because, you know, one penny uh, on a hundred shares is a dollar. It's not gonna make a big difference to your portfolio. Uh, but sometimes when there's lower volume, you do get a spread between those numbers. Um, so for if you're trading them on your own, be very cautious in liquidity. How many shares are trading per day and how big that spread is. Um, uh, for us, if you're going through an advisor, you don't have to worry about it too much because remember I said uh, the, the sponsor of the ETF, or the, the, the manufacturer of the ETF can can create and destroy units. Um, so if we are doing a big order for clients uh, and there's not enough liquidity, we can just contact them uh, because it's large enough. They will just create uh, an institutional um, uh, units for us uh, and then we'll just get it uh, at that, that very tight spread basically at the value of the portfolio or very close to the value of the portfolio uh, again within pennies uh, and get covered on liquidity In the same uh, on the sell side they'll destroy some units if they need to so um, not usually a concern liquidity um, but if you're buying one of uh, of lower just be aware of that uh, especially if you're, if you're buying on your own in, in very small volumes uh, because, of course, they won't do an institutional amount for very small volumes. Uh, and as I said, kind of the cost uh, the cost to run these things. Always be aware of what you're paying for that, for that management fee. Uh, we do a screening of all TS because, you know, for TSX-60, for example, there's probably over 100 TSX-60 ETFs out there. Um, so we look at the lowest cost one and make sure they actually track the TSX 60 as accurately as possible. Uh, because if it's not tracking the TSX 60, I'd rather pay an extra 0.01% for one that tracks it really well. Otherwise, you're not getting what you're paid for. So I wouldn't worry too much on the cost side, but do be aware of what you're paying and, and I would look shop around to make sure you've got, a, you've, you've got a good one and that's what we screen for. Now, if you're not strictly invested in ETFs, some people have apprehension, you know, they prefer individual stock positions, uh, and I get you, um, and, and on larger portfolios, you know, individual stock positions, I can, a lot of times, uh, make, make sense over ETFs, uh, or you're very targeted for a certain type of growth or risk, uh, individual stocks uh, make a lot of sense. Uh, you can diversify targeted to yourself. You can control your taxation a little bit better. Um, but uh, sometimes ETFs do make sense. Uh, for example, uh, in global markets, if you want to get access to emerging markets, uh, or if you want to get access to uh, BRIC countries, right, like uh, Russia and, and, and India, um, you know, where you can't get access to the underlying exchanges very co- easily or cost effectively or timely. Like right? uh, a lot of times, because different hours of market operations. Uh, you know they might be op- a complete opposite our our, our uh, market hours. So you know uh, you put in a, an order and you won't get filled to kind of the next day and you know, can't really put your price in. Uh, whereas at least the ETFs, you know you you know the the exposure you're having, you know the price uh, that you access you're getting. Uh, and if you choose one of those active ones versus a passive one, uh, you know at least the manager is actually trading live on that market all the time. So you are here but still getting access to that, that benefit. So they can make a lot of sense in a stock or individual security portfolio when, uh, when you're trying to duplicate something that would be co- more costly, more time consuming, or, or just playing harder to do here in, in Canada uh, versus where the underlying exposure is. Or maybe you want to get access to an illiquid uh, underlying market where you can't go out and buy the securities that easily, or can't get exposures to that underlying sector or um, particular area uh, directly, um, you might want to use an ETF as a, a pseudo exposure to it uh, that's easier for you to get access to and easier for the manager to deal with the liquidity side and you don't have to uh, you know, deal with those kinds of things. And that's, that's true even a fixed income, right, of bonds you know, a lot of bonds trade in very large, large blocks and for individual uh, buyers to get access to it, even if they do get access to it, they usually have to pay a premium because someone bought the large block and divided it up as a middleman or a middle person and, uh, and you're paying a higher price for that. So buying the ETFs, buying those large blocks, uh, and then you're getting that translated straight through to you without having that middle person uh, take a cut on the, those, uh, those exposures. You know, it makes all of a sudden ETFs become, um, you know, very worthwhile in your portfolio to give you that kind of diversification that you need. So that's all I want to talk about ETFs. I was, uh, I thought it was worthwhile doing a refresher. If you have any questions, you want to look at your portfolio, you want to see what you're paying, uh, or understand more what you have in there, reach out to us at uh, mikeonmoney.com go check out our series on on, uh, cryptocurrencies that we took a really deep dive in. Uh, Each video is uh, consumable, only about 10 minutes. Uh, But together, there's 40 minutes of video there to watch, but you can do it on your own time. Uh, And if you want to the links to those, just reach out. So with that, uh, thank you again for joining us for a live Tuesday. Uh, If you want to watch the replay later, uh, we'll have it up and the podcast will be up as well. Take care and enjoy your week, everyone. Talk to you soon.